0: Next, ReachMD's special series, Focus on Diabetes. This month, we're taking an in-depth look at diabetes, the disease now affecting nearly 1 in 10 Americans. Tune in all this month for the latest research, treatments, and prevention methods to gain new insights for your practice.
1: Does the concept of the metabolic syndrome still have clinical application in relation to diabetes and cardiovascular disease? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. And our guest today is Dr. Gerald Reaven, active emeritus professor of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine in Stanford, California. Thank you, Dr. Reaven, for joining us. It's my pleasure. To begin with, how would you define the metabolic syndrome?
0: Well, it's had several definitions. There have been multiple definitions, actually. The most recent one consists of five dichotomous criteria involving plasma glucose, blood pressure, triglyceride, and HDL cholesterol concentration, and obesity or some measure of obesity, waist circumference to be specifically. And if you meet the cut points for three out of the five criteria, you are quote-unquote diagnosed as having a metabolic syndrome.
1: How should a practicing physician use this concept in diagnosis and management, if at all? I think they should ignore it. Okay, and why should they ignore it?
0: Well, I think it provides nothing useful. Let me give you a couple examples. First of all, in terms of the criteria, if you have frank type 2 diabetes, does it matter if you have the metabolic syndrome or not? The treatment approaches to a patient with type 2 diabetes are well codified, and there's no real need to know anything more, what you just have to look at are all the risk factors that you know occur in patients with type 2 diabetes and address them one by one. The same thing is true if you have a patient with unequivocal hypertension. Again, hypertension is going to increase the risk of heart disease and stroke. You're going to want to lower the blood pressure as well as focus on all other risk factors for heart disease in that patient. So once you have an unequivocal diagnosis, whether or not that patient also meets the criteria of the metabolic syndrome is actually redundant. That's the first and major point. The second point, if you want to get a bit fancier, is that the metabolic syndrome is based upon five abnormalities that tend to cluster together. And we can discuss some of those later on if you wish. But the point is, they are highly related. There's another very commonly used risk factor score for finding patients with coronary heart disease called the Framingham risk score. Well, it turns out that the Framingham risk score is much more effective at identifying patients who have no apparent heart disease who are at risk for heart disease. So it does a better job at one of the supposed goals of the metabolic syndrome. Well, why is the Framingham risk score better? Let's straightforward again several major reasons. First of all, the Framingham Risk Score incorporates a series of different unrelated risk factors for heart disease. For example, smoking, cholesterol, HDL cholesterol. HDL cholesterol also sort of brings in people who might have high triglycerides and glucose intolerance. And it uses continuous variables. When you're using the Framingham Risk Score, you put in the actual cholesterol level or the actual blood pressure. You don't say if the blood pressure is 135 over 85, it's bad, or if it's 130 over 75 is good because that's a dichotomous way to look at it. The Framingham risk score does continuous variables. So make it a long story short, there is general agreement that the Framingham risk score does better identifying heart disease and does the metabolic syndrome. The metabolic syndrome, which was initially proposed to do that, it turns out is a much better predictor of diabetes. And that's not surprising because one of the criteria for the metabolic syndrome is glucose level itself. And it turns out that just knowing the fasting glucose is a better predictor of type 2 diabetes than knowing the metabolic syndrome. So I don't see any advantage to using that particular appellation in the care of patients.
1: You know, it's interesting to talk to you because in preparation for this, I went back and read the Banting lecture Uh from 1988, which which you gave, and appeared in uh, Diabetes that year. And it seemed that with that article... Academia began to write a flood of articles about this subject. You've now had 22 years to look back on this, and it definitely sounds like your feelings have changed about this. Could you kind of put us in perspective, I mean, for the person who really brought the metabolic syndrome onto the stage for people who practice in the office, how your thoughts have changed over the 22 years?
0: Well, they haven't changed at all. Let's go back a little earlier. When I began my research career, the notion that insulin resistance even existed in the world was heresy. The idea that insulin resistance played a major role in the development of type 2 diabetes was, I guess, double heresy. So a good deal of my early years were spent developing techniques to measure insulin action and eventually making it very clear... That most patients with type 2 diabetes are insulin resistant. That first-degree relatives of patients with diabetes are insulin resistant. Insulin resistance predicts the onset of diabetes, etc. So by 1988, that link I say, which had once been heretical, was now conventional wisdom. What was not clear to, I thought, the medical world was that most patients who were insulin resistant did not get diabetes they kept on secreting enough insulin to overcome the insulin resistance and maintain normal or near normal glucose tolerance. But these individuals were at risk to have some degree of glucose intolerance, high triglyceride, low HDL, and elevated blood pressure. And that cluster was an unknown risk factor for heart disease. But That concept was a mechanistic formulation trying to explain why those four variables clustered together. They occurred more commonly in the same person than by chance alone. It was a conceptual breakthrough, a conceptual contribution, hopefully, to account for why those four things happen. It was not meant to be a diagnostic category there's so nothing in the Banting lecture that talks about diagnosing what I call syndrome X. It was simply saying that if you're insulin resistant, at least, at, and this was many years ago, two bad things could happen. On the one hand, you could get diabetes, and if you got type 2 diabetes, that was a serious disease, which is major cause of morbidity and mortality, was coronary heart disease. If you kept on making enough insulin, and so you're insulin-resistant and hyperinsulinemic, you were at risk to get hypertensive, high triglyceride, low HDL, and also get heart disease. So it was just showing there's a two-pronged way that insulin resistance could lead to coronary heart disease. Again, it was a concept. It was a mechanistic formulation of physiological variables not intended to be a diagnostic category.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Focus on Diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Gerald Revan, active emeritus professor of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine in Stanford, California, and we're discussing the metabolic syndrome and if it really has any clinical use in diagnosis or management any longer. I'd like to ask you this, though. If you diagnose part of this constellation in your office— Is it appropriate to caution patients that this may be leading to a cascade of other related risk factors?
0: Not only should you caution them, you should be measuring them. By the way, just in passing, there was a very nice paper several years ago from the Framingham Offspring Study, which showed several very important things. First of all, any two bad things were as good as any three bad things. In other words, you didn't need three bad things to be bad. In fact, there were many combinations of two abnormalities which were much more powerful than the clinical impact of three abnormalities. So these components are not equal in terms of risk factor, and there's no need to have one or two or three or four or five as both the American Diabetes Association and the European Association for the Study of Diabetes made a very clear statement. If any one of these abnormalities are present, You should look for the other ones, and you should treat all of them, including other known risk factors, as aggressively as is appropriate for that given patient.
1: Recently, the World Health Organization had a World Health Organization expert consultation on this very subject. It was published last year, and you were part of that consultation. What were the results of that consultation, and how can they be helpful to us?
0: Well, basically, what the WHO said was that, first of all, this is not a useful diagnosis. They also made the point, if you're even thinking about it, it should be considered in terms of premorbid conditions. Again, if a person has frank diabetes, frank hypertension, that's all you have to know in terms of being an effective physician. And basically, it said one should look for abnormalities. We know what these things cluster together. We should identify them and we should treat them all as best we can. Parenthetically, and this is something that may or may not be useful, the report that you describe was published in a journal called Diabetologia. Diabetologia is the official journal of the European for the Association of Study of Diabetes. It was initially submitted to Lancet, And it was submitted to Lancet because Lancet has been one of the journals that's carried many of the public statements of the various organizations who have been pushing the metabolic syndrome as a diagnostic category. Much to my amazement and actually great concern was Lancet would not even review that manuscript. So there are a lot of prestigious organizations who went out on the line to popularize this concept, who are still trying very hard to keep it extend.
1: So people are holding on to the metabolic syndrome. I was struck by Metabolic Clinics of North America in November 2007, I mean a couple of years ago, devoted a whole issue to the metabolic syndrome, which really kind of leads people like myself who are trying to keep up that this is really a real phenomenon that we've got to pay a lot of attention to.
0: I think we have to pay attention to the ability of insulin to dispose of glucose varies 6 to 800% in an apparently healthy population. So this is a variable that has enormous variation from person to person. About 25% of that variance is due to how heavy you are and about 25% to how fit you are. The other 50% is probably genetic, although there are no genes involved, but we know it's familial, and there is a great impact of ethnicity, with most non-European ethnic groups being more insulin resistant than people of European ancestry when matched for the other relevant variables. Well, as we get more heavy and more sedentary, there will be more and more of these abnormalities, diabetes, the glucose will go up, triglycerides will be more commonly elevated, HDL cholesterol will more often be low, blood pressure will be likely more likely to go up. So the abnormalities that are subsumed under the rubric are important ones, but you don't have to deal with them with a diagnosis called the metabolic syndrome. You can come up. It's there's so many. Obvious places where you can get in trouble. So let's say you have a person with frank diabetes, and also has triglyceride of two hundred and twenty-five. But that's all they have that meets the metabolic syndrome criteria. Is this person healthy? Of course not. They have metabolic syndrome. No. Are you going to treat their diabetes as best you can? Of course. Are you going to try to lower their blood pressure? Of course, etc. So I'm or lower their triglycerides, whatever. So I'm trying to point out. That the issue should be aware of the phenomenon that these things cluster together, but not rely upon our official dichotomous diagnosis, yes or no, in order to deal with them as a clinician.
1: I want to thank Dr. Gerald reeven for being with us today and talking about how we can do a better job with keeping so many of our patients healthy today. Thank you very much for being our guest today.
0: Well, thank you for the opportunity.
1: ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And as always, thank you for listening.
0: You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Diabetes. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.